Hello there. My name is Josh Ling, and thank you for listening to this week's sermon podcast. Hell is a difficult topic for many people, even for Christians. Hell makes God look petty and mean. The word on the street about God is that He is either a fraud or a bully. Why would a good God create hell? Why inflict such suffering and pain? Surely human beings can be reformed with better education. We're not all that bad. Well, at least not from our own point of view. Preaching about hell and judgment is tricky too. It can lead to simplistic statements that are true but unhelpful. For example, it is often said that God sends people to hell when they choose not to believe in Jesus. That's the kind of simplistic explanation that makes God look petty. Why should a good and fair God send people into eternal punishment? for his own failure to convince people about his existence. That doesn't seem fair. And if that's the kind of God we worship, then he is truly not worth our worship. Well, that's not the God of the Bible, but it is a caricature of the God of the Bible. We all know it's easy to create a version of God that we could easily dismiss intellectually so that we don't have to deal with the real God the God who is the rightful ruler of this universe and who rightfully demands that we give an account of ourselves as his subjects. Here's an interesting observation to begin with. The fact that we are capable of asking questions about God's goodness and justice is itself the result of God's design. The Bible tells us that God made us in his own image in Genesis chapter 1. This is unique to humanity. Not even Satan, a beautiful and powerful angel created by God, who wants so much to be like God, has the honor of being described as created in God's own image. You can see why Satan, the ancient dragon and serpent, is so jealous of humanity. Being created in God's image means that everything that is good about humanity, our compassion, kindness, generosity, our logic and intelligence, our curiosity even, comes from God. And so we should feel sorry and empathy for people if they are tormented day and night in the lake of fire forever. We wouldn't want people to go to hell if possible. God wants that too. The Bible has many verses that clearly says God does not want people to be in hell. In 2 Peter chapter 3, for example, the Apostle Peter answers the question which some of us have been asking. If the end of time is supposed to come soon, why the long period of delay? It's been more than 2,000 years since the book of Revelation is written. Why hasn't Christ returned? The answer, according to Peter, is God's patience and kindness. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter makes an important point for our sermon today. And the point is, God is not man. A thousand years is like a day for the Lord and vice versa. In other words, God is not like mankind. He does not live in time and space like we do. 
And Peter says that God is patient, giving us more time to repent and avoid hell. But why create hell in the first place? In the end, the Bible doesn't explain why God created hell. It just says He did. This is the first hurdle we all have to cross if we are to accept God's testimony about Himself. There comes a point when we have to accept and acknowledge that God is God and we are not. By definition, God doesn't need to justify His actions and decisions to us. The king rules his kingdom according to his own will and purpose. To deny that is to be a rebel, a rebel without a just cause. Because our God is a kind and gracious ruler. He is patient and kind, but he is a ruler nonetheless. To deny his rule is to be a rebel. To deny his rule is to join the camp of Satan. Already in this sermon series, we have seen that Satan is the usurper of God's kingdom. Back in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, Satan wants to be like God and was expelled from heaven. Next, he tempted Adam and Eve with the same thing, planting the seed of doubt that God is withholding from Adam and Eve the ability for them to be like God when he forbade them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Listen to the exact words of Satan quoted here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. Satan says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. To be like God is euphemism for wanting to rebel against God's rule, to usurp God's right as the one who decides what is right and what is wrong in his world. And so instead of trusting in God's authority to decide what's right and wrong, we push them aside and say, hey, we want to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. Of course, we are not God. Our sense of justice is skewed and is often influenced by self-interest. The Bible calls this sin and informs us that we are all sinners. The more important point is this. Sometimes we might feel like we are victims of circumstances. We've been deceived by Satan or we've had a bad upbringing. And so it's not really our fault. But the reality is we are not just victims of Satan's deception. We are active collaborators in Satan's rebellion against God because we have all usurped God's authority in our lives for ourselves, even if we are doing that unconsciously. Therefore, because we are usurpers of God's rightful rule, we all deserve to be judged by this king, or in the language of Revelation chapter 16, we all come under God's wrath. This sermon has four headings. Firstly, God's wrath is against all mankind. All of us are under God's anger. Now I know that the majority of the people listening to this sermon would consider themselves Christian, safe from God's wrath. However, it's still important for all of us to understand the nature and severity of God's wrath so that we remember what it is that we are rescued from. Otherwise, there is a risk that we might actually be mistaken in our salvation or be complacent in our praise and thanksgiving for it. Secondly, God can be angry but not sin. See, human anger is a bad comparison with God's anger. God's wrath is not sinful because God is holy. And thirdly, 
God takes revenge on his enemies. And so be afraid. Be very afraid if you hate God and hate God's people. Remember the parable about the tenants of God's vineyard, the tenants who killed God's servant and eventually killed God's son. Well, God will have his revenge. Finally, do not harden your heart when God disciplines you, because God disciplines those he loves. There are two possible responses to any kind of natural disasters. One is to view it as God's unjust punishment on the world. The other is to trust in God and to view all the natural disasters in our lives as God's discipline. The ungodly will harden their hearts and curse God. The godly will see these events as God shaping and transforming them. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look at the sermon. Heavenly Father, you are holy and righteous. Your word is truth. Open our eyes and our hearts to hear your word. For your kingdom's sake. Amen. God's wrath is against all mankind. Let me pick up from where we left off last Sunday. Come with me to Revelation chapter 14. We pick up the story from verse 19. Uh, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is a frightening image of God's judgment. After Jesus has saved his people, the rest of humanity will be placed in the winepress of the wrath of God. And there they will be trodden, as grapes are trodden to produce wine. Except that in this case, it is not wine, it is blood. The image described here should make us distressed. Blood from the people who are trodden flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle and for 1,600 stadia. Now that is a unit of measurement. To help us appreciate the scale of judgment here, it's good to know that the town of Bethany is 15 stadia from Jerusalem. The town of Emmaus is 60 stadia from Jerusalem, and that's about half a day's journey by foot. And we can conclude, therefore, that 1,600 stadia is a very wide space. The depth of the blood flow is as high as a horse's bridle. And so we're talking about a lot of blood shed being depicted here. Friends, this image of judgment should disturb us. It goes to show how serious sin is against God. The imagery of the wine press here is really picking up uh, the imagery of the cup of God's wrath back in chapter 14, verse 9 to 11. And chapter 14, verse 9 to 11 is where we get the imagery for hell. Reading from Revelation chapter 14, verse 9, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. There was a famous sermon preached by an evangelist back in the 18th century. The title of the sermon is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
The preacher was a person by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who was a local church pastor. In this sermon, Jonathan Edwards explained that it is not as if God is sending people to hell. People are falling into hell by the weight of their own sinfulness against God. See, we are all usurpers of God's rule in our lives. We all believe deep down that we'll do a better job than God running God's world. But we've already proven how wrong we are. Look at our world. Look at the murders that has been committed. Look at our greed and selfish insecurity during this coronavirus pandemic. We all believe that we have good reasons to lie when we do. And so we're falling into hell because of our rebellion against God's rule. And so it's not that God sent people to hell for not believing in Jesus. We are already on our way there. To use the words of Jonathan Edwards, we're falling into hell by the weight of our own sinful rebellion against God. But here's the important point to understand. The only thing keeping people from falling into hell is the sure mercy and love of God in Jesus Christ. So using the words of Jonathan Edwards again, this mercy and love of God is governed by God's perfect and free will. God is under no compulsion or has any obligation to save any of us. It's God's own free will and His love that made Him send His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus drank from the cup of God's wrath so that we can be forgiven. Those who reject Jesus are choosing not to be saved from hell. It's worth saying this again. I believe that I'm preaching to many people who have been converted. If that's you, then you wouldn't mind being reminded about God's wrath because you are thankful for God's rescue. But I wonder if there are people among us who might hear a sermon about hell and judgment and very quickly say, yep, I'm already converted. I really don't need to hear another sermon about God's wrath. For many people, becoming and being a Christian is something like getting a get-out-of-jail card. After we've said the sinner's prayer, for example, we feel like we can do whatever we want because God will always forgive us when we are sorry. And so when we face God's judgment at the end of time, we whipped out our Jesus supercard and God has to let us pass over from hell. That's simplistic and it's not true. Jesus says that not everyone who call him Lord, Lord will get into heaven. We need to remind ourselves that being good alone doesn't save us. Going to church or attending church Zoom meeting itself doesn't save us. So what does? Keep listening. So we're all under God's wrath. and We need to know that God's wrath is pure because God is holy. This leads me to my second point. God can be angry without sinning because he is holy. In chapter 15, God's holiness is in view here. The broad context governing God's wrath is His holiness. In chapter 15, we see those who are victorious against the beast and in its image were holding harps and they were singing before God. And they sang before God about His rule and His holiness. Reading from chapter 15, verse 3 to 4. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, 
for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then continuing from the song, the singing, what follows next is the seven angels of God entering God's most holy place in the heavenly temple to retrieve seven bowls of God's wrath. The wrath of God is coming from within God himself because it was given to the seven angels by one of the four living creatures who were the closest to God. Each of the bowls were filled to the fullest with God's wrath. And God's glory is in full view here as the smoke filled the entire temple. The Bible presents the wrath of God not as the uncontrolled rage of humanity. We've all experienced angry outbursts of rage. This is not the picture here. God's anger is full, but it's also measured. Seven bows and it is complete. The God who judge is the God who is holy. The reason why a loving God must create hell is because He is holy. To say that God is holy is more than just saying that God is perfect. It is also saying that God is unique, set apart. God's holiness is the reason why God's love and God's wrath can coexist without contradiction. We cannot compare God's love with human's love. God is not like man. The best of human love sometimes turns a blind eye to truth and justice. Human beings define love as complete acceptance without judgment. But that means sometimes we turn a blind eye to wrongdoing if it concerns ourselves or someone we love. And as long as we are not the recipients of the injustice, we don't really care. In the same way, human anger is not like God's anger. Sometimes we get angry because of righteous reasons. But it is also true that most times we let our anger escalate to become rage and destruction. We lashed out instead of dealing with the situation. God is the only one who can love without that love degenerating into permissiveness. God can judge us without his anger and wrath being tainted by his own selfish agenda or lashing out uncontrollably as rage. God is God and we are not. In order to understand God, to repent of our sin and rebellion against God, we have to begin here. We have to understand this. God is God. Because God is holy, God's vengeance is also holy. Thirdly, therefore God's revenge is righteous. And God will exact revenge on his enemies. The seven angels who received the seven plagues from God pour them out on the earth. The account is set up for us in chapter 16. We don't have time to go into all the details, but let me outline it for you for your own study later. Chapter 16 can be divided into two sets of three plagues, adding up to the final and last plague. Plague 1 to 3 are directed at creation, the land, sea, and rivers. And plague 1 to 3 is followed by a verdict from an angel concerning the judgment of God. It is from this verdict that we get the third point of our sermon, that God is righteous when he judge. Reading from verse 5 to 7 of chapter 16, And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God's judgment is righteous 
because of the blood of the saints and prophets who have been killed by God's enemies. And so a good and loving God must create hell because it is a fitting response to the cruelty and evil done to God's people from the very beginning of time. This verdict was echoed by the altar. Yet it's the speaking altar. Remember, this is a vision. And the altar is where the souls of the martyrs are kept back in chapter 6. God must judge because it is fair and just for people who have been killed and oppressed because of their testimony for Jesus. This has been happening to God's people since the very beginning. Satan has been persecuting the prophets of God. But this is not just happening in history. This is happening today in many parts of God's world. We are blessed to be living in a country where there is religious freedom and safety, but this is not the case in many other parts of the world. Uh, Open Doors Australia, which is an organization helping to document the plight of Christian persecution in our world, listed many countries where it is dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. In these places, you can be killed for possessing a Bible or for being a Christian. There is cruelty and there is mutilation of the body. It is evil. It is wicked. And so if you have made it your aim in life to persecute God's people, then be afraid. Be very afraid. You are setting yourself against God, the God whose wrath will come. The plagues of the fourth to the seventh angel are specifically targeted at you. See, when we come to the second set, right? the second set of the three plagues, they are more specific. They are targeting Satan's kingdom and the people who are following Satan. The demonic forces have been unveiled, the three impure spirits that look like frogs that came out from the beast, the dragon, and the false prophets. These have gone out into the world to convince all the kings of the earth to commit treason against the true king, the Lamb. The climax of this rebellion is the gathering of the rebel forces to that place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And it is at Armageddon where the battle will rage between the Lamb and his people and the dragon and his army. Armageddon is a reference to Mount Medigo, a place of frequent battle in the Old Testament. And finally, in the seventh bowl of God's wrath, this is where God's wrath will be complete. It is done, says the voice. There will be a great earthquake. There is no longer any hiding place from God's judgment. The great city is split into three. And we're not talking about the, the city of Jerusalem here, but the great city of Babylon, which had committed adultery with Satan. When the seventh bow of God's wrath has been poured out, the islands fled, the mountains could not be found. In other words, there is no longer any place to hide from God's anger. At the beginning of the sermon, I open with the words of Peter. I like to close with the same chapter. You will find that there are many similarities between Peter's description in 2 Peter chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 16. Reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burned? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for this, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of God as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom God gave him. Let me finish with the last point, which is our application point, that God disciplines those he loves. So far we have seen that everyone is under the wrath of God. Without the forgiveness that Jesus brings to us, we are all falling into hell. And we also know that God's desire is for all to repent. And so even in His judgment against people who have chose to follow the beast, there is a sense that the right thing for them to do is to repent and say sorry to God. But that is not what we see happen in the text. Time and time again, the reaction of the people is to be angry with God and to curse God. They don't understand that when God punishes us for our wrongdoing, it is also like a father disciplining his children. The right thing for the child to do in this instant is to turn to the father and say sorry instead of becoming hardened in our hearts against God. Notice that the people in Revelation 16 is following the example of Pharaoh and Egypt. During the Exodus, God struck Egypt with the plagues, but increasingly, God made a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. The same thing is happening here in Revelation 16. In the end, Pharaoh and the Egyptians had a choice to repent and to humble themselves before the true God. What can we learn from God's judgment against his enemies? Here is where we find the difference in response between God's people, his chosen ones, and God's enemies. Whenever a natural disaster strikes, an earthquake, famine or flood, for example. There are always two ways we can respond to it. One way is to be like the people here in chapter 16. We blame God. The other way is to say, yes, God is in control of these forces, even the destructive ones. And we may not fully understand why God allowed the natural disasters to happen, but we ought to humble ourselves before God. Because God does use natural disasters and other kinds of trials in our lives to discipline us for our good. 
He does so because He loves us. And because we trust in God's holiness, we can have the confidence that God's love for us and God's wrath against sin in us is perfectly balanced by His will and purpose. Let me pray for us to close. Heavenly Father, please forgive us when we blame you for the bad things that happen in our world and our lives. Help us to trust you and to know that when bad things happen, it might be you disciplining us. We pray for others in our world who have decided in their hearts to reject you. We might even know some of them as our friends and loved ones. Father, have mercy and by your Spirit change their hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.